Indeed, there is rich hope in those words. And well, we now turn our attention in the study of God's Word to Romans chapter 8. We come to this amazing section of Scripture. I know I have said to you, if you uh, joined us in Romans chapter 7 and you started attending the church in that time, there's an extra gold star for you in heaven because you endured through that jumping right in, not only jumping right into a critical section of this study in Romans, but a section where you probably thought to yourself, you're taking a long time for something that doesn't apply to me very much. But it is, again, a rich uh, section to look at, and now I'm excited to see what the Lord has for us here in Romans chapter 8. This is a glorious chapter, Romans chapter 8. Paul moves from the despairs of chapter 7 to the struggle under the law to now the riches of the grace that is for us in Christ Jesus. In fact, as I was reading through the chapter and translating it and working through kind of structuring it for our messages, just kept what kept jumping out to me, the number of, of uh, conjunctions that Paul is just tying idea and idea together. Just notice verse 2, for the law. Verse 3, for what the law. Verse 4, so that. Verse 5, for. Verse 6, for. Verse 7, because. He just stacks these ideas and it continues on through the rest of the chapter. I mean, you can just look down if, you're, if your Bible's in columns like mine is. Look at the start of each verse. Almost every verse starts with a conjunction, but, for, for, and, uh, because, on and on. Paul just stacks idea upon idea upon idea through this entire chapter and just builds this marvelous case of the riches of God's grace given to us in Christ Jesus. This comes to an end of what he started in chapter 1 in verse 16 when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God unto salvation. From 116 all the way to this point, he has been defending the gospel. The need for the gospel. What is the gospel? Why it is important and why the gospel does not actually contradict God's previous work, but actually is the fulfillment of it. And now we come to the marvelous riches here in chapter 8, where he just pours grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy upon the believer. This chapter really is indeed for us overflowing with God's great grace and mercy. And as I said... It concludes one theme to which he picks up in chapters 9 through 11, another theme, and that is God's work among the nation of Israel. And what does it mean if God is accomplishing this work through the gospel? Well, what about Israel? And we will answer that when we get into chapters 9 through 11. But for now, we're looking at, again, the conclusion of God's grace uh, abounding to us through Jesus Christ. This is the theme of chapter 8. The overflowing mercies given to us. And Paul is just abundant in explaining it. In fact, one thing you'll notice if you work your way through chapter 8, there's not a single imperative. All of it is explanation for what God's doing, but no commands to us. No, you've got to do this. No sense that there's something on us that we have to do. It's just God's grace poured out over and over again to us. As we come to this chapter, I know I've heard some people say statements like this, and maybe you've thought it, you just haven't articulated it, but you've said something like this. 
I used to go to Romans 7, verse 13 through 25, to find hope. Because if Paul struggled with sin, I found hope for me struggling with sin also. And pastor, you ruined it for me. I added that last part. Most people haven't heard say that, but exaggerated it just for this point. That we did, we would go to Romans 7 and we would find a measure of hope. And if Paul struggled, we would find hope that we would struggle too. In fact, uh, just by full confession here, uh, I got some new Bible software this week and I got to load every one of my old sermons into that software. And every time I would go to do a search, it would bring up old sermons. And three times I use Romans 7, 13 through 25 to describe the believer. So I empathize with you because I'm growing with you in this process. No longer am I looking at Romans 7 as that which I would say is the base for hope, recognizing what Paul struggled, so would we. I would say this, that if you're looking to Romans 7 for hope, you've landed the plane too soon. Go one more chapter. Romans 8 is where the hope is. Romans 8 is filled with hope for the believer. Filled with language of deliverance, language of freedom, language of resurrection power, language of the spirit of life, language of the work of the Son, the work of the Father, and the work of the Holy Spirit, language with God's preserving power, keeping his people to the end, language of God's grace, which is given to us by his purpose and choice to preserve us and protect us. This is where we move to in chapter 8, we move to a chapter filled with hope. Chapter 7, filled with failure, filled with persistent and continual failure, filled with weakness, filled with inability, filled with fruitlessness, filled with slavery to sin, filled with a desire to do but inability to do, filled with wishing but never accomplishing, filled with despair and weakness. Chapter 8, filled with power, filled with God's grace, filled with God's accomplishments on our behalf. So if you want hope, fix your eyes on chapter 8 and you're going to see the riches of the hope that God has for us in this marvelous chapter. And indeed, it's abundant. Now, as we begin to kind of look at this chapter, I have to say this, that I know some of you are recovering charismatics. I know some of you come from the charismatic background and you're coming over And you're a bit worried, like, well, why do we talk about the spirits? Well, here we go. Romans chapter 8, the spirit of God is active in this. And in this chapter, we learn of a biblical perspective of the work of the spirit. We can fix our eyes on the spirit's work here in Romans chapter 8. And we see the riches of God's favor given to us by the work of the spirit ruling in us and through us. And so there is a sense in which we are are needing the Spirit of God, that we have the Spirit of God as a result of of the work of the gospel, and it is this work of the Spirit, this New Testament work, that gives us confidence and hope as we move through our Christian life. And that's what we're going to understand by the time we get to the end of Romans chapter 8. Now let me just set up the argument as we head into this text here. If Romans chapter 7 is marked by failure, Romans chapter 8 is marked by victory. If Romans chapter 7 is marked by self-reliance, Romans chapter 8 is marked by 
reliance on God. If Romans chapter 7 is focused on the rule of law, Romans chapter 8 is focused on the rule of the Spirit. If Romans chapter 7 is life without the Spirit of God, Romans chapter 8 is life with the Spirit of God. And if Romans chapter 7 is filled with a life opposed to God because it cannot come under the law of God, Romans chapter 8 is filled with a life with the pursuit of God and the fulfillment of God's ways. There's a contrast between these chapters, and we're moving into this marvelous light here of Romans chapter 8 and the riches and the glories of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. Now, I understand as we move into the newness and the riches of God's grace in Romans chapter 8, you still might be thinking, but I don't feel like I have all of these graces. I don't feel like the Spirit's ruling within me. I don't feel like I have this resurrection power. I don't feel like I have this newness of life. How come if I have them, how come I don't feel like it? And I'll remind you at this point, all of this chapter is an explanation by Paul for what God has done for us. Irrespective of what you may feel, this is what God says he has done for us. So that it, so the, let's say like this, the truths of Romans chapter 8 are not measured by our maturity. They're measured by what he has accomplished. And if we want to be mature, we're going to align ourselves with what he has accomplished for us. And we will see that maturity. And that is what I'm going to explain through this whole series. How is it that we can align ourselves with the riches of the gospel so we can be led to a kind of Christ-like maturity as believers? That is what we're going to see here in Romans chapter 8. We may not be there now. We may even fall into seasons where we drift away. But a maturing believer is going to take these graces and apply them so that God will move within us to transform us into the very image of Christ. Because all believers have the Spirit of God ruling within them and working in such a way to put to death sin and to lead to righteousness. This is the work of God within us. We don't always live this way. We don't always live yielding to the Spirit. We don't always live in the awareness that we have been forgiven. We don't always live realizing that we have resurrection power at work within us. We don't always live as we've been adopted as sons of God. We don't always live realizing that we have been delivered from the judgment of God, but we are, because that's exactly what Romans 8 draws out for us. So while I said there is no commandment in Romans chapter 8, 1 through 39, I believe, yes, 1 through 39, there are certainly sections where we're called to evaluate. Notice back in verse 9 that what Paul gives a series of conditional statements from verse 9 through verse 13. Notice what he says there. He says, however... You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now notice, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead 
because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 10, but if the Spirit of Him who, dwell, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, jump down to verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is a call for evaluation. That is Romans chapter 8, is the call for evaluation. Is the Spirit alive in you? Is the Spirit ruling? Is the Spirit moving among you? Is He there? If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the warning Paul gives. No commands, but warnings. Evaluate. How do you respond to the Spirit's work? You see, the struggle we will learn as we work our way through this chapter, the struggle is that we can resist the Spirit. We as believers who have the Spirit of God within us can resist the Spirit's work and therefore quench the Spirit. In fact, we can even grieve the Spirit. Paul said that in Ephesians 4.30. It says in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We can resist the Spirit of God that would move within us and cause grief. Or Paul said it like this to the Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit. To quench is to, su- to suffocate, to put out. It has the idea in Ephesians uh, chapter 6 and verse 16 of the fiery darts. It says we are to put out the fiery darts or quench them. The idea is do not quench the Spirit. Do not put it out. That is, the Spirit is working within us, moving us to desire the things that are good and right, and we can resist it, and we can put them out so that we can actually resist the work of God and not move to maturity. And this is the warning for us to evaluate. Is the Spirit trying to work in your life to move you into righteousness and you're quenching it, you're, you're resisting, and you're holding back, or do you not have the Spirit at all? If you're, what is the cause of your immaturity is the question. Paul is going to lay out, as we walk our way through this chapter, that's what he's going to draw out. Where are you at? You're either on the scale of not having the Spirit of all, at all, or you have the Spirit, but you're resisting, so you're immature. Or you have the Spirit, you're yielding, and you're growing in maturity. There's the scale in which we are evaluating ourselves when we're coming here to Romans chapter 8. And here's the key. The key is our transformation is not based on God's willingness to work in us. But our transformation is based on our yielding in faith to the work of the gospel and the work of God. God will work. He has started this good work. He's in the work of transforming us into the very image of Christ. Now the question is, what are we doing in response? Are we yielding or are we resisting? Are we coming under the lavish grace? Are we receiving it and, and uh, entrusting ourselves to it? Are we still pushing back against that grace, expecting something else from God? And as we <clears throat> noted, kind of working our way, and this is just, again, another idea setting up our text here. I have never argued in this series that Christians will never struggle with sin. 
I mean, he starts with it in Romans chapter 6, telling us we are not to submit our members as slaves of unrighteousness and that we are to to put off the deeds of the flesh. We, We have been arguing that we are going to be in this battle. The difference is this. We're not going to be habitually controlled by sin. And this is the truth that's going to be brought out in Romans chapter 8. There is a kind of power, there is a kind of work of God in the gospel that sets the believer free so that he doesn't have to be habitually controlled by unrighteousness, that he can be set free. He has a newness of life. And this is the very truth that Paul begins to unfold here in in chapter 8, this new life this lavish grace given to the believer that sets the believer free to live for God. The Romans 7, man lived under the law, persistently giving over to evil, persistently desiring good, but not able to perform. The Romans 8, person lives now by the Spirit in newness of life and overcomes. And so what we're going to see in Romans 8 the series of graces and mercies that God has given to us to strengthen us in our spiritual life so that we can be overcomers. And that's what I want to draw your attention to. And uh, we'll get to two this morning. The first two of these graces, verse 1 and 2. Let me begin just by reading verses 1 through 11 so we have our context. Here's what Paul writes. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who are according to the spirit the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you... Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit to who dwells in you. This is a, again, marvelously rich section This adds so many doctrinal truths that encourage us. So here's the first benefit for us in Christ. The first benefit in receiving the gospel is this. We are freed from the wrath of God. 
We are freed from the wrath of God. Notice again, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now think about this truth just from the context as this has been laid out for you. We have been working our way through this, and we've seen in Romans chapter 7 that Paul was writing to the Jew who would question the, the gospel and would say, your gospel is saying that the grace of God given to us in the law is wrong, that the law is uh, evil. Your gospel of grace has said that the law is evil, that there's a problem with the law. And Paul says, no, there's no problem with the law. In fact, the law is holy, just, and good. The law is perfect. In fact, the problem isn't with the law. The problem is with you, sinner. You can't keep it. You keep falling short. The problem is not with God. It's not with his covenant ministry. It's not with his law. The problem's with the sinner. The problem's with you. And if you were one of those Jews who believed in the old covenant and you were embracing the old covenant law and you thought that you were delivered by your keeping of the law, it's this truth right here in Romans 8, 1 that would be most important to you. Because you would be aware, because of the law, of your sin. You'd be aware of how you fall short. And I would say to you, if you were an old covenant law-keeping Jew, or if you were a recovering legalist, or you come from a hyper-fundamentalist background, it is these words here you need to pay attention to. Particularly because of this sense those who come from those backgrounds have a tendency to view God as if God is looking to pour out punishment on you. That he needs you to suffer. That he is just waiting for you to mess up so he can bring his wrath and he can bring his wrath at any time he's ready. When he's ready to bring it, that God is looking to pour out his wrath on you because you didn't keep his law. You failed to keep it. You fell short. You're guilty. You can't measure up. And so now his wrath is coming. One commentator says it like this. I think he says it well. It's a little longer quote, but he sets up the idea well for us. He says this. He says, because of the atoning work of Christ, we remember the truths here in Romans 8.1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, that is, who have been made one with him by faith in his redemptive sacrifice. So those who have been made one in Christ have been redeemed. He says, the just penalty incurred by the sins of the human race was paid for by the death of Jesus Christ. The unfavorable verdict has been removed. Now all those who are in Christ are the beneficiaries of that forgiveness. He says, it follows that condemnation as an object of reality has been removed. There is no legitimate place for condemnation as a subjective experience. Now, here's the key. To insist on feeling guilty is but another way of insisting on helping God with our salvation. Oh, how deeply embedded in human nature is the influence of works righteousness. Oh, how so many do live in this where they think, yes, I'm guilty, uh, but, and yes, Christ died for me, but there's something God is going to do to punish me. 
They live in a kind of guilt, carrying it along, expecting that they're going to help God and cooperate with God in the payment of the penalty of sin. And the first and most marvelous truth of the gospel, the first truth certainly that would have captured the heart of the Jew who lived in legalism is this, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Not a single sin that we cooperate with Christ to pay for is entirely satisfied upon Christ. This is the doctrine of penal substitution that teaches us Christ went on our behalf to the cross and bore upon himself all our condemnation. Christ and Christ alone bore that penalty. Christ and Christ alone took every consequence you and I deserve for transgressing the law of God and he bore that penalty. The guy under the law had no such hope. Back in verse 24, chapter 7, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? The man in chapter 8, verse 1, knows that in Christ there is no condemnation. We know there's no condemnation. The self-righteous man has no hope of deliverance. The self-righteous man lives in only despair because he knows his guilt and he's waiting for the wrath of God to come. He's waiting for judgment. They, ha- they know God is righteous. They know the law is righteous. They know they fall short and they're just waiting for God's wrath to come. And they don't recognize, again, it has been fully satisfied in Christ. The just wrath of God for all of our transgressions, has been satisfied. And believer, it is for every one of our transgressions, past, present, and future, all of our transgressions have been satisfied in Christ. That is the doctrine of penal substitution. He went on our behalf. Now, let me point this out. Turn back to chapter 5. Because this is not the first time that Paul brought out this argument. In fact, he makes it very clear in chapter 5 and uh, starting in verse 6. Notice what he says. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, notice, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now receive the reconciliation. See, Paul has already made this truth known to his audience about the gospel. The gospel has set us free. The gospel has set us free from the wrath of God. Christ has borne our penalty. Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. He took upon himself our judgment goes on and he compares from verses 15 through 
19, the contrast between what came in Adam. In Adam, we received condemnation. In Christ, we received life. In Adam, the one gift affected all and condemned all. In Christ, he, re- he receives the many. So the question is this. If Paul has already brought out the doctrine of penal substitution, the doctrine that Christ bore our wrath, why does he bring it up again here in chapter 8 and verse 1? Did he forget what he wrote earlier? Clearly not. It's because of this very purpose right here. He wants to point out the self-righteousness and say to the self-righteous, you cannot redeem yourself. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has already paid everything. If you are a law keeper and one who found righteousness in keeping the law, you would live in constant despair knowing you deserved condemnation because you never measured up. And the answer is, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This would be the most compelling, the most appealing argument to the self-righteous person All wrath is satisfied in Christ. All of it. The guilty conscience doesn't have to work because it's satisfied in Christ. The unrepentant sinner knows he deserves punishment, but he finds peace in Christ. All people need this. Need this freedom. In fact, this word condemnation... It's only used three times in the New Testament, all three times in Romans. Twice in Romans 5, it's used Romans 5.16 and 5.18, and then right here in 8.1. And in it is speaking of condemnation that comes in judgment. The, the wrath poured out in judgment, and he's saying here in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation at all. Adam's sin brought condemnation to all those in Adam. Christ's gift brings freedom from condemnation so that we stand now in no condemnation whatsoever in Christ Jesus. There's no personal atonement we can make. There's nothing we can do to cooperate with his work to bring about satisfaction. There's no need of taking upon ourselves anything to complete the work of Christ. He has done it all. There's no way that we would add to his his accomplishment so that God has completed 99.9% of punishment on Christ and then we got the 0.01% is on us. No, all of it is satisfied in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, let me give you how I have seen many Christians fail to apply this very verse. Some who have professed faith in Christ, who have believed that they, you know, that the Lord Jesus Christ, they've confessed Christ as Lord, believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead. They have put no faith in themselves, but they put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how these individuals struggle applying this very verse. 
Somewhere in life, they're moving along and they stop and they remember a past sin, a sin from many years ago, a sin they feel very terrible about. Mind you, they've already confessed it. And mind you, they've already repented of it. Their life is completely different now that you would no longer notice that sin in their life because they've repented of it and they have confessed it. And yet that sin comes into their mind, that remembrance of that event comes in, and it comes in like a dart piercing them. They are feeling guilty. They are either under an overburdened conscience that is bringing up the guilt, or they're under a satanic attack where they're being attempted to go back and remember that transgression. And now they're living in a misery. They're misery remembering that past sin. And I've seen this happen many times where that sin then rules in them and and reminds them that they're guilty and reminds them that they cannot escape of it and they feel turmoil. And mind you, they've already confessed, so they're confessing again and they're wondering, well, maybe I didn't confess enough. And so they go through the whole process again, trying to confess and trying to repent, only to feel more and more guilt. They cannot move forward. They can't move forward and walk in newness of life. They cannot move forward and walk in the grace of God. They constantly live in the despair, remembering the past. They may even get to a point where they have wept over that sin and they start to look around at others around them and they're wondering why others around them aren't despairing as much as they are. Maybe they don't take it as seriously as I take it. Maybe they don't care about their sin like I care about my sin. And they begin to wait, when is God going to bring out the punishment? Because it didn't come then, so maybe he's just holding it to catch me off guard somewhere. So that when I'm having a really good day and everything's going my way, then God's just going to give me that, that cup of wrath and pour it out upon me. And so they constantly live, looking over their shoulder, wondering, when is this wrath going to come? After all, I am a sinner And after all, I deserve this punishment. And after all, God, you should be pouring this out upon me. If you're righteous at all, you'd be pouring it out upon me. And so they constantly live in a despair looking to the past. They might even go one step further and begin to get angry at people around them. Angry that they're not feeling the same way and they're easily irritable. And then they start projecting their sin upon others. Oh, you're doing the same thing I did They live in such a way where they might even build themselves up with a kind of pride. Look how serious I take sin and none of these others do. And look how how important I view sin, but they're not viewing it the same way. And so there comes a a self-righteous pride. While they live in this state of spiritual misery, never moving forward in holiness, never moving forward in righteousness, always looking to the past in despair and wondering when is the wrath finally going to come so I can move on. They pat themselves on the back, though despairingly, thinking this is a state of spiritual maturity, i.e. Romans chapter 7. And I would say to you, You miserable wretch that's filled with unbelief. It's unbelief. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing you could do. There's no amount of flogging that you can go through that God's going to say, you're right, I needed that to complete this. It's all accomplished in Christ. He's accomplished everything. There's no amount of self-atonement that can satisfy the wrath of God. 
There's no, there's no amount of self-righteousness that God needs to complete his work. He has done it all. There's no amount of man-made religion, no amount of man's wisdom that God needs to complete what he has accomplished in Christ. Because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No small cup of wrath, no little bit waiting for you, It's all been satisfied in Christ alone. Instead of looking back at the judgment and recognizing I deserve something, look forward to the grace that is in Christ Jesus because that's where the believer lives. We live in newness of life. F.F. Bruce adds it like this. And that word condemnation... He goes in and he says, it could accurately be described as penal servitude. There is no penal servitude. There's no sense where we are serving under penalty. I like that idea because sometimes as believers in the gospel, we drift right back into that. We think, I got to do something for God. I got to go fix this. I got to suffer with him. Because he suffered for me, i got to do something. Or God's just going to come out and get me sometime later. And the answer is no. There's no condemnation in Christ. You've confessed your sin, 1 John 1, 9. He is faithful and righteous to forgive you all your transgressions. And if you are walking in newness of life and repentance, you have demonstrated that you have turned from that way. He's not coming back to, to bring out his wrath upon you. He has satisfied that in Christ. If you've confessed and repented, you walk now in the newness of the gospel, the newness of Christ. Anything else is, at its root, unbelief. You are not believing the gospel And you're believing in your own wisdom and power rather than believing in the word of God. That is the self-righteous man who Paul just preached the gospel to in chapter 7. The self-righteous man who is delivered. When you recognize that God and God alone has satisfied all righteousness and he has taken care of the judgment. He has covered it all. Then you're set free. So the believer, first principle is this, lives under the awareness there is freedom in Christ. The penalty has been satisfied in Christ. So instead of living under the burden shackled down by past guilt, we live under the awareness that guilt has been satisfied and we can walk in freedom and newness of life. One more truth to give you. That that alone is worth just, you know, weaving on, but one more. We live by a new law. We live by a new law. Notice verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. We have a new law now. The law of the spirit of life, as Paul describes here. And we live in newness of life. Well, we, that's what Paul said back in Romans 6 in verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We have a new life. We live in newness of life. 
It's where Paul then goes through the rest of this chapter. Verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lusts. Don't go presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God, notice, as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. We walk in newness of life. We walk in the law of life. We can live for God now. We can live for his righteousness. We can live for his glory. He can rule and reign within us because we are alive to him. Now, someone might say at this moment, but I don't feel like that. I feel stuck, I feel hopeless, I feel like I can't change, I feel like I have no energy, I feel like I have no power, I feel like I can't resist, I feel like I failed and I keep failing, I feel like I'm pointed in the wrong direction and I can go nowhere. Well, then I would just simply say to you what I've said to other well-meaning brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what God has said. And what God has said is, if you are in Christ Jesus and believe the gospel of God, you are alive. Walk in newness of life. See, that's where our faith comes in. We believe God and his word. And his word says, you have now, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We have newness of life. And we're marked by this principle as believers. We're marked by the principle of life that is ruling and reigning within us and drawing us to Jesus Christ. Yeah, we can resist the Spirit when we ought to yield. And we can ignore the truth that we know. And we can uh, hear the commands of God and remember the truths of God's word and resist those by putting them out of our mind or thinking about something else. But what God says, we are to yield. We have life that we can respond to that. We can respond to the truth of God's word because we have this new principle of life reigning within us. This principle that allows us to respond. See, the question would be that here, How would you know you're resisting the Spirit? The answer would be this. What happens when conviction comes? How do you respond? When conviction comes, when you're listening to a sermon and all of a sudden you're pierced by something, what do you do when that comes? Do you confess sin? Do you seek to change patterns? Or do you forget about it and move on? Do you suppress the idea? Do you seek to know the truth and align your life with it, or do you seek to push it out of your mind as inconvenient? Do you meditate on that truth? Do you seek to align your life with it? You see, the Spirit of God moves within you as a believer because the Spirit of life is at work to direct you, to help you overcome. All of this comes, notice again, because you're in Christ Jesus, verse 2. The spirit of life, which is found in Christ Jesus, has set you free. That is to say this. If your sins have been covered and there's no condemnation, it is also true that the spirit of God is in you, the spirit of life, which has set you free. It's not different categories. Well, that's the Christian who's in Christ who's free from condemnation, but they don't have the spirit yet. Now, if you're in Christ, you have all of these things. 
the spirit of life, this new law. So, as the old covenant believer would turn to the law to find direction, it's the spirit of God who leads us as believers, who takes the word of God and brings conviction and directs us to move according to God's will. We have the Spirit of God ruling and reigning within us to help us overcome. So these are the two first great and glorious truths that give us hope. We can't pay any sin. There's no penalty that God is looking for because he's satisfied it all in Christ. So we are entirely set free. There's no condemnation. And now we have this principle, this law at work within us to move us to towards God. And next week we'll keep adding to that to see the Spirit's work within us. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these marvelous truths. Certainly thankful for how you ministered through the Apostle Paul to his audience and we can see in response how it ministers to us. When we would be tempted to go to a form of self-righteousness, when we would be tempted to take a penalty upon ourselves, we recognize the freedom that we have in the gospel. And indeed, you have set us free, free to live for you, free to fix our eyes ahead on the glories to come, not on the past and our failures, but on the riches of your grace set before us in Christ. So may we be a people who are strong in this grace and growing in maturity, not trusting in our own self and our own abilities, but trusting in Christ alone. And when any would come and would point out what is happening within us, there's no pride within our accomplishment. We take all pride in you and what you have accomplished, and we love to get out of the way so you can be on display. So take our lives and move within us to accomplish your perfect will so that in everything we would give glory to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.